You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Thursday the 5th of October and this week we'll be talking about Nobel Prize Week and how the week Krona means the winners this year are getting a bit shortchanged. We'll speak about the introduction by Sweden's government of new surveillance measures and the trade-off between privacy rights and crime prevention. We'll look at what the future holds for Scandinavian airlines after Air France KLM became a major shareholder this week. We're also going to discuss how work permit holders will be affected by a new salary threshold which the government formally pushed through at the end of last week. And finally, we'll examine how organised crime networks in Sweden are exploiting weaknesses in the country's welfare sector to make huge amounts of money. I'm Paul O'Mahony and with me today in a suddenly very autumnal Stockholm is James Savage and we're joined from Malmö by Becky Waterton and we'll also hear later from Mana Yurel, a criminologist at Malmö University. How are you, Becky? What's it like down there? Has it got colder and wetter in Malmö too? It definitely feels like autumn more than summer. It feels like this season has suddenly changed. I'm not entirely against it. No, we had a lovely September this year, didn't we? So uh, I think, you know, it, it set us up nicely. James, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, Good. I'm quite enjoying this uh, colder weather. Did you see that story about the foreign minister this week to be a spillstorm getting turned back at the Ukraine border because he'd forgotten his passport? It was very funny. I saw him being interviewed on Actuel last night on SVT and the presenter was trying to tease him and he was having none of it. He was just being very formal about it. He said, well, I, I happen to have not had the right documentation with me. Didn't even say I forgot my passport. He was like, I did not have the right documentation with me. And so he was very, he was paying it very deadpan. But yeah, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I, I was going to ask if you were able to sympathise with him at all. It doesn't sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Too many, too many years of journalism have given me schadenfreude. I saw the comment from his press secretary was just like, there was a logistical obstacle. (laughs) We do not comment comment on ministers' journeys other than that. It's like, stop asking us. Because the story came from the Austrian press, in fact. So it was was obviously some diplomat, well, presumably some diplomat from some other other, other delegation who who gossiped. Mm. Um, So uh, to the Austrian press, I don't know. I think it's quite fun. Well, let's get on with the news and we'll start with the Nobel Prize Awards and we'll add links in the notes where you can read all about this year's winners. But I just want to ask you, Becky, to tell us a bit about Anne Louillier, the physics laureate who's a professor at Lund University here in Sweden. Who is she and how did she react to the news? Yeah, so she is a French-Swedish physicist born in Paris in 1958 who now works as a professor of atomic physics at Lund. 
She was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics jointly alongside Ferenc Krauts and Pierre Agostini, might be pronouncing those names incorrectly, for experimental methods that generate attosecond pulses of light for the study of electron dynamics in matter. So essentially creating extremely short pulses of light that can be used to see what's going on inside atoms and molecules. I think the, the best thing about her, which for me makes her seem like such a badass, is that she didn't actually answer the phone from the Swedish Academy, the, the phone call from the Swedish Academy, which issues the award straight away. She was in the middle of the lecture. So they always announce the results at quarter to 11 and they call the recipient first. Oh, I think they announce it at 11, but they call the recipient at quarter to 11. So she only found out when she turned her phone on in the scheduled break at 11am. She got the phone call, chatted to them, turned her phone back off and went straight back into teaching to finish up the class. Although she did say that the last half hour of the lecture was quite difficult to, to finish. <laughs> I can imagine. I saw some comments from some of her students who were in the class and they were, they were so impressed by her being able to go back and continue to teach after just finding out she'd won the Nobel she Prize. She apparently didn't yeah, tell them anything either. She, was, she didn't yeah. tell them, no. No, no, well, she had to keep the secret. But according to some of the students I saw interviewed, some of them kind of figured out that that, that must be what it was. Because she was she, a bit shaky when she came back. Yeah. She was a bit shaky when she got back. They had their eye on the timing. And of course, she, they, they, they realized that she was very eminent a potential, mm. and a potential candidate and that the prize, prize was being announced that day. So some of them figured it out. Brilliant. Another detail that caught our attention was how the prize money for laureates has increased this year, but is actually worth less than it was two decades ago. What can you tell us about that, James? Well, this should be no surprise to most listeners of the podcast. I suppose the one Nobel Prize winner who won't be affected by this so much, at least, is Anne Hullier, because she will, presumably living in Sweden, be able to spend her money in Swedish krona. But if you're one of the majority of prize winners, as it often is, who is American, for example, mm. you are going to get much less money out of your prize than you would otherwise have done. So the problem here is the weak krona. And in krona terms, the prize is worth more than ever before, having been raised this year from 10 to 11 million mm. krona. But whereas 10 million krona would have got you nearly $1.2 million just three years ago in 2020, Today, 11 million krona gets you just around a million dollars. So more krona gets you fewer dollars today. Mm. So you have to go back, in fact, to 2015 when the prize amount was just 8 million krona to find a time when the prize was worth less in dollars. It's, you know, still a tidy sum. It's a good illustration of the effects of the fall in the krona mm. that are affecting people from all walks of life and, you know, particularly anybody who earns in krona and has costs in, say, euros or dollars. Yeah. And so the Nobel Foundation has actually needed to raise the prize money to keep standing still and to maintain the prestige of the prize. Okay, yeah, thanks for that. I think we're all feeling the effects of the weak krona to some extent. And we'll link in the episode notes to an article we have on the site about how foreigners in Sweden can lessen the impact. Let's move on now to the Swedish government's plans for new surveillance methods to combat gang violence. Since October the 1st, just a few days ago, Swedish police now have the power to monitor the communications of people they believe are part of criminal networks, even without a concrete suspicion that a crime has been committed. This is something that was previously only available to the security police. Becky, can you tell us a little bit more about what this will allow the police to do? Yeah, so essentially, these new rules govern the terms under which Swedish police are permitted to monitor conversations in order to kind of prevent crimes from occurring. So before this, the only body which was permitted to use these surveillance powers, which included listening in on conversations or phone calls, monitoring suspects with cameras or like registering people's locations, was, like you said, the security service, which is also referred to in Sweden as SEPO. 
in order to prevent crimes which threaten Sweden's national security. Under the new rules, which came into force at the end of this month, the police can use these measures in cases of kind of typical gang-related crimes, murder, abduction, bombs, serious weapon or drug-related crimes. And also these permits to use these measures for monitoring suspicious activity can also be linked to specific people rather than just specific areas, as was previously the case. So before you could say, oh, we want to put cameras up on this square because we think something's going to happen there. And now you can say, oh, we want to monitor this person because we think they're doing something dodgy, is the way I've understood it. Previously, they had to have quite specific, concrete reasons behind wanting to monitor communications, but now the level of suspicion needed will be much lower. Although these permits will still need to be approved in court, there will still need to be some sort of suspicion that a crime has been or will be committed, and a specific individual who can be singled out as being a driving force in carrying out the crime in question. Thanks, Becky. Uh, These proposals were put forward by the previous government, so this is something that that has gone through the legislative process, and the opposition and the current government were both agreed on on doing this. And as you've described, these are far-reaching powers, but the government, together with the far-right Sweden Democrats, has said it wants to go quite a bit further. And this week, the Justice Minister, Gunnar Strummer, presented a raft of new surveillance methods that he wants to make available to the police as soon as possible. Can you tell us about this, James? What are the plans? So uh, the four parties of the governing coalition want to break decades of restrictive Swedish policy over camera surveillance in particular. First, they want to be able to access a broader range of cameras, for instance, traffic cameras, Mm. um, when looking um, to solve crimes. They also want to allow the police to use facial recognition to recognise, for instance, gang members. On top of this, they want to extend police powers to use drones for surveillance purposes and to increase the number of surveillance cameras nationally to 2,500, which is up from the current goal of 1,600 and will be something like a five-fold increase from when the government came to power. So, you know, this comes on top of the new laws previously passed that came into force this week around bugging and accepting private, uh, intercepting private communications. Mm. And so experts are calling this a paradigm shift in Sweden's policy towards surveillance from a very anti-surveillance approach to an approach much more in line with European norms. Yep, and we'll get back to that paradigm shift in in just a moment and what it means and what people are saying about it. Earlier this week, I spoke to the crime researcher Manu Yarel from Malmö University about these plans, and I want to stress that I told him we would discuss the ethical aspects separately in the podcast with our panellists, which we will do in a couple of minutes. So the question he's answering here is, to what extent the proposed new surveillance measures make life more difficult for organised crime networks? To a fairly large extent, I think. Uh, All of these tools are things that will make police uh, investigations function more efficiently, uh, faster, and that can yield results with less uh, effort from the police. So I think uh, all of these things can contribute, uh, especially when it comes to police solving crimes and solving crimes faster. So that, that I think, is a key point. There might also be some preventive effect of this, especially from the CCTV. We have a fair amount of evidence that the introduction of CCTV cameras can reduce crime, especially planned crime, such as property crime or narcotics crime. But we also have some evidence from Sweden that suggests that it might actually reduce violent crime in these vulnerable areas, the kind of gang neighborhoods where the police are putting a lot of focus. Do you think any of these are a bad idea? No, but I think uh, all of them are things that you shouldn't expect too much from it. Uh, for instance, the, the increased uh, availability of surveillance from the, for the police, it's not something they will use 
against a ton of criminals. It, this is mainly something that gives them the opportunity to choose the most important persons they want to apprehend and focus their efforts against them, which can be really good sometimes and might help to prevent crimes. But it's not going to be something that is used against all of them uh, or things like that. But given that, I mean, we have seen from uh, the police have gotten access to uh, encrypted chats over the past few years, the EncroChat, Skyek, and Anom app applications, which police, which police got access to from law enforcement in other countries. And that has been really kind of a treasure trove for Swedish police, where they've been able to monitor criminals in, in real time when they plan crimes and uh, have been able to stop many violent crimes and apprehend lots of criminals. So that is something, kind of a, an, an example of how important these new tools can be. But then again, that was a different beast because then everything was monitored. All the messages sent by everyone in Sweden who had one of those encrypted applications. Now it's going to be a few criminal individuals where the court gives the police the right to monitor their communications. So it's going to be a much smaller scale, but can be of great importance in, in specific cases. That was Manny Urell, and we'll hear more from him later when we discuss how Swedish gangs make their money. But staying with these new measures for a moment, some of them are quite controversial, aren't they, James? What are some of the concerns being raised? Well, criticisms coming from the legal profession and from civil liberties campaigners who fear that Sweden is quickly becoming a surveillance society. So Fredrik Bergman Evans, who is head of civil liberties group Centrum for Rett Visa, Incidentally, the um, he's the successor in that role to Gunnar Strömer, who is the justice minister yep. who is putting through all these um, changes. He says that people might be preoccupied by violent crime right now, but that this increased surveillance won't be rolled back if and when the violence stops. Mm. And other experts say that the government can't even be sure that the new powers will be effective. And they point to the risk of mission creep. In, the, in other words, that the powers which are intended to tackle serious crime right now might be end up being used more widely, perhaps for less serious crime than is being than, than people have in mind at the moment. Great, thanks for that summary. And as I mentioned, we will return to gang crime a little later. We're going to turn our attention to work permits now after the government revealed last week that a new salary threshold to qualify to work in Sweden is going to take effect at the start of November. This is something we've spoken about several times previously on the podcast, and we know it's an issue that affects a lot of listeners. Becky, what are the most important developments to be aware of? I think the most important thing for our readers and listeners is probably the fact that we finally know how the work permit salary threshold is going to work in practice and how people who've already been applied for permits but haven't had them approved will be affected. Um, so yeah. first, let's just do a quick recap for people that haven't that don't have this kind of at the top of their minds. From November 1st this year, the minimum salary that applicants need to earn in order to be eligible for a Swedish work permit will be raised from 13,000 kroner a month to 27,360 kroner a month mm. after the government just before the end of September formally pushed through this change. Uh, the new salary requirement is 80% of Sweden's median salary as announced by Statistics Sweden's yearly updates. So it will change every year. Right. And it also needs to be in line with industry standards or collective bargaining agreements. So that's th this 27,360 kroner is just the minimum possible level. It could be higher than that for some sectors or what, depending on your job, really. It's the most recently published median salary at the time of your application, not the time of a decision that will determine how much you need to earn in order to be eligible for a work permit. So according to Statistics Sweden, they most recently updated the median salary on June the 20th, 2023. 
If you applied before then, your application should be assessed according to the previous median salary, or in other words, you need to earn at least 26,560 kroner a month. So that's that's also quite important because that's not the 13,000 kroner a month limit that was there before. So a spokesperson for the Migration Minister confirmed to the local this week that people who submit their applications before November 1st, but don't receive a reply by that date, will have their applications processed according to the new minimum salary rather than the old 13,000 kroner minimum. So the only exception is people whose work permits applications have already been rejected and are in the process of appealing that rejection. So it is going Mm. to apply retroactively, basically. You're not going to be kicked out if you're on a work permit under the old rules that's already been granted, but you will have to fulfill the new rules when you apply for your next permit or when you apply to extend your permit. So it's not like they're going to go and check everybody who's currently on a work permit under the old rules and then kick them out but you will have to fulfill the new rules by the time you apply for a new permit. Thanks for that roundup, Becky. I was just looking this morning at some of the first responses we've received to a survey we have on the site about how readers of the local will be affected by the changes. And I'm not going to get into the details because the survey is still ongoing. But judging solely from the number of responses we've received already, it's clear that this is having an impact on a lot of people's lives. And it's a topic we'll be coming back to on the podcast in the weeks and months ahead. If you'd like to respond, there's a link to the survey in the notes, as well as to other articles we have on the site explaining the changes. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Scandinavian Airlines announced this week that Air France KLM is set to buy an almost 20% stake after the airline launched a search for investors to help it exit bankruptcy protection. This is a big deal, isn't it, James? Can you explain why? Well, first, because it seems to guarantee SAS's future after many, many years of uncertainty and most recently the company being under bankruptcy protection in the US. Secondly, because it means that for the first time, the Swedish state is no longer an owner of the airline. The Danish state still is, but the Swedish state Mm. isn't anymore. So Air France KLM has bought this, as you said, 20% stake, and then other owners are investment companies effectively. But the third reason this is significant is because as part of this deal, Air France KLM could be in full control of the company within two years. So effectively, it will become part of a bigger international airline group. So 
finally, SAS has found a place in an industry that has been consolidating globally for years. Mm. Think Lufthansa. Lufthansa owns Austrian Airlines, Swiss, Brussels Airlines, or IAG, which controls British Airways and Iberia and Aer Lingus, mm. or Air France and KLM itself, which is, also, which is already a, a, um, a combination of two major airlines. So in the midst of this, SAS has struggled to remain viable as a standalone airline. And there's been a lot of speculation over, over the years that perhaps Lufthansa would eventually buy SAS. But that's not what's happened. Now it looks like SAS's future is as part of Air France KLM. Mm. Of course, this is terrible news for existing SAS shareholders who will get nothing for their shares, including the Swedish state. So the company was in US Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection since July 2022. And it will exit that and all the shareholders will lose yeah. their money. And what does it mean for passengers? Well, it's probably okay news for passengers. For a start, the company will survive. And the new owners have been very clear that they will continue to operate routes from Scandinavia and including from Sweden. It might mean less competition and higher prices on some routes, mm. thinking particularly between Sweden and France and Sweden and the Netherlands, where yeah. Air France and KLM are big. And there will be one significant concrete change. SAS will cease to be part of the Star Alliance network with Lufthansa, United and Turkish Airlines. Not immediately, but at some point yet to be decided relatively near future. And it will become part of the SkyTeam alliance with Delta and Virgin Atlantic, as well as Air France and KLM. And this is a smaller alliance and therefore perhaps slightly inferior. People who've got Euro bonus points, that's to say loyalty points with SAS, mm. will be able to keep those points. But at some point in the future, they won't be able to use them on Lufthansa. They will be, and they won't be able to earn them on Lufthansa, they will, but they will be able to use them on these other airlines. They also won't be able to use Lufthansa's lounges if they've got access to those. Right. Um, they will, but they will be able to use Air France and KLM's lounges. So a change, but, but perhaps not terrible news for customers. It's also possible that some, for instance, loss-making domestic routes in particular might end up being cut, but there's no, there's no confirmation on that yet. So we'll have to watch this space. Do people care that Sweden no longer has a national airline, essentially? I think in a funny way, they do. I mean, it's funny because Sweden really never had a national airline. It was uh, Scandinavian. Yeah. And it was Norwegian and Danish as much yeah. as it was Swedish for most of its existence. But I think, you know, people still have a, a strong connection to, to SAS and, um, and an affection for the company. So I think, you know, this is for some people uh, something of a sad day. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks for giving us the latest on that story. We're going to return now to gang crime, a topic that's really dominating the Swedish news agenda at the moment after a few weeks of especially violent and often deadly attacks. Uh, one question that's been in the news this week concerns where the gangs are getting their money. Drugs, as we've discussed before, make up a lot of it, but that's not the whole story. And we're going to listen again to criminologist Mani Urel as he talks about the gang's alternative sources of income. After I asked him about information released from Sweden's Economic Crime Authority this week about how organised crime networks are increasingly finding their way into Sweden's healthcare sector to the extent that they're opening health centres and vaccination centres. Many of these gangs are multi-criminals. They do all kinds of crime that they can gain a profit from. And some of them are specialized in like robberies. Others are specialized in fraud. Others will do a lot of tax evasion, uh, working without paying taxes uh, or getting um, money from authorities for being on sick leave while in fact you're not. But I think it differs between different gangs. And also I think you should kind of separate different types of gangs. Some of the more advanced types of economic crimes are not what most of the street gangs in our 
deprived neighborhoods are doing. They do drugs and sometimes other things. Uh, but whereas, for instance, motorcycle gangs can be involved in more advanced businesses and, and uh, transactions. And how worried do you think we should be about organized crime establishing itself in the welfare sector? I mean, is there a risk of a sort of a mafia state development? I mean, we cannot rule out that they will be become even more entrenched in 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 society and and infiltrate other parts of society. But then again, I think this is a topic that is very high on the political and police agenda. People all over the spectrum of authorities are doing a lot to try to combat this. So I think the Swedish government will prevail. Will will kind of be able to do something about this now that everyone is focusing on it. So I think. While we should take the the threat and the and the signals of what's happening uh, seriously, we still have competent authorities that can combat this crime as well. Yeah, if we think of the gangs that are in the news at the moment, like primarily Foxtrot, what would you say their sources of income are? That's clearly a case of uh, mainly being drugs. I think the Foxtrot network. There's there's been a f- I think a few court cases just in the last year where the total amount of drugs seized amount to something like 10 million euros and they still keep going and that i mean that's a substantial loss and they still have kept going so they clearly are a very big player in, in the drugs business but now again that network barely exists anymore since since it splintered and started up in an internal conflict on the on the other side sort of gangs that are are organized crime networks that are primarily getting their money from say the welfare sector which ones are those some of the street gangs are involved in that but also for instance motorcycle gangs uh, might be more involved in that and i think in general gangs that gain more of their income from like welfare uh, crimes and similar they will on average tend to be less involved in the gang violence the shootings and the bomb attacks there is no need to fight against other gangs over the welfare fraud market because that's kind of unlimited whereas the drug market is limited so i think that's a key difference the gangs involved in the drugs trade are more likely to be involved in the shootings and bomb attacks than gangs that predominantly get their income from other types of crimes that was mana Yarel from malmo university becky You've been writing about the welfare sector as a source of income for the gangs. What can you tell us about what you've learned beyond what we've just heard from him? Yeah, so as you mentioned at the start, the Economic Crime Authority warned earlier this week that gang criminals have started running healthcare centres and vaccination centres in order to access the funds municipalities and regions set aside for them. So this isn't just like registering yourself as sick in order to get benefits. But that, that's kind of what I thought when, when, when I hear the term welfare fraud, that's what I think of. But this is running an entire fraudulent healthcare centre to finance your criminal activity, which is pretty crazy yeah. to me. In a report released earlier this year, co-authored by a number of Swedish authorities, which included the police, and I think it also included the Economic Crime Authority, uh, they warned that there are a number of issues in the system which make this possible. So firstly, you don't need any kind of permit in order to start a healthcare centre, or a number of similar centres indeed, like residential care homes for young people, which are called HVB Hemmal for example. Yeah. Uh, there's also no national register of the centres because everything to do with healthcare in Sweden is done on a regional basis rather than a national basis, which makes it a lot more difficult to kind of spot patterns of fraudulent companies setting up healthcare centres in different regions. It's also quite hard for regions to get rid of a company once they have a deal in place, especially if this company's good at kind of filling its leadership positions with people who appear trustworthy. There's no proof that they're doing something fraudulent. 
Or the, another, another tactic is that they just swap out their board of directors if they're accused of committing fraud. Then it's like, oh, turning over a new leaf. It was just those old di- board of directors that were doing things wrong. And I think for me, it's kind of bizarre to think that our tax money is going to fraudulent healthcare centres or Swedes tax money is going to fraudulent healthcare centres run by gangs when the healthcare sector is really crying out for more funding across the country. It just seems like such a such a paradox that this is possible. I think this is deeply worrying because the issues we've had recently about gang criminality that have been highlighted have been around, um, you know, turf war in the drugs market. Yeah. You know, that is worrying. A turf war in the drugs market is worrying because it, it, incre- it increases violence. Children are getting involved. And that's scary in and of itself. But when you start having gangs that are organized to the extent that they are actually getting involved in corrupting the public realm... Then you're moving towards a situation where the mafia is effectively starting to control ultimately parts of the state, the privately run parts of the state. It's their, it's their way in to infiltrate the state apparatus. And then you've got a whole different level of problems. And, you know, this is the sort of thing we've seen with, you know, in organized crime, in places that have, that have been played by organized crime historically. And it's a very, very, very bad, worrying state of affairs if this is allowed to continue and if this gets worse. So I think this issue deserves a lot more scrutiny and a lot more concern than I think it's getting. Because I think we're, you know, we're very focused on on the drama and and you know the loss of life around the the, the violence in the in the suburbs, the shootings and the and the explosions, because they are so they are so dramatic. They're so they're so sort of visceral and visual. But in a sense, this issue in the long term is perhaps even more worrying. Because this undermines society, undermines democracy in a way that um, drug uh, sort of turf warfare perhaps doesn't to, to the same extent. This is going to the heart of, of, what, of what society is. I think also there are, there are other areas of Swedish society which are also vulnerable to this kind of thing. Like I, Immediately I think of free schools. Like they're also kind of private companies. You can relatively easily set up a private company and provide a quote-unquote school with minimal checks, you know? Yeah, and, and the whole Swedish Föreningens system. And, you know, this is an issue that we've had um, that, that, that's actually been highlighted previously, which is that you can get government grants for sort of cultural associations, for things called studiecirklar, where you provide adult education. And you can get government grants, private organisations can get government grants for that. And, you know, there has been some evidence of the of, of, of organised crime using those systems to gain money. And we're seeing, but, but now we're seeing it spread into completely different areas. I think this requires quite a lot of thought on the part of the government, and I wonder whether it's got the capacity to really think about it right now. Okay, we're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, Please follow us in your podcast app and give us a review or rating if you can. We'd really appreciate it. Our panellists today were James Savage and Becky Waterton. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Amani and we'll be back again next week. Until then, take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? 
elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage. <laughs>